0: Stewardship, the time of year when everybody in churches around the world get so excited (laughs) because they are eager to hear the Word of God, eager to contemplate their place within the kingdom of God, and eager to give witness for who they are in Jesus Christ. If that is not true... Find hope within yourself, because it's about to become reality. For we need to understand that when we come to the time of the year when churches approach stewardship, that in this house, in this place, we do not come to make people feel guilty. We do not come to tell people how much to give, when to give, or to whom to give. We do not come here to raise the church budget despite what many people think. Giving to God is not about meeting a church budget. A church budget should simply be that which flows out of what people in the church are bringing to give to God in response to the generous grace that they have received from God. It is not about paying bills, building a new building, even funding the youth or children's program, though it does all those things, but rather it is about telling the world that we are a different kind of people. We are a kind of people who have recognized that not only have we received salvation from God through Jesus Christ, but we are a people who believe in the life that Jesus lived. And we want our lives to be a reflection of his life so that God might be praised by all those who benefit from the grace that God has given us, his children. Anything else that is short of that is far short of the biblical idea of stewardship. One of the things, as the years have gone by, a few of them have passed now, when people would come to me and say, well, how much is the budget this year? How much do I need to give? I would cringe on the inside, as if you were simply giving to pay the bills at the church. When people will come forward and say, "Well, I brought my check today to pay the preacher. Now I want you to—I want you to do something for me." Double cringe. Smile on the outside, but inside, no smile. Now I don't remember anybody's ever told me that here, so I don't think I'm making any of you feel guilty. But if you feel the need to say that, just save it. Just share your need, and you'll be all right. It doesn't have to come with money. It doesn't need to come with money. And it doesn't need to come with you telling me that you're giving to the church budget. You don't need to tell any pastor that. If they're making you feel like you need to tell them that, then you need to preach to them a little sermon that comes from 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. Giving is a response to the grace we've received by God. Generous giving is most reflective of what we've received from God and most reflective of the personality of our Savior Jesus the Christ. This letter that was written to the Corinthians, Paul is reminding them that they had promised to make this collection and in chapter 8 and the first part of chapter 9. He's urging them to go ahead and complete it to make their generous pledge, so to speak, a reality because they have been taking up not for the care of their own church but receiving a collection to help the starving Christians in Jerusalem, Jewish Christians. And he was asking these Gentile Christians in the Corinth to help meet their need because they and their reception of God's gifts had been growing and multiplying. And it is in their liberality of giving that they were going to praise God in magnificent ways. That's what this topic is about. Here in these verses, in verses 6 through 15, he's pronouncing the theological background for this understanding of giving. And he says so many things. We'll not hit on all of them this morning because this is not really a a sermon this morning about being a steward of the money you've got. But rather it's about being a steward and a recognized steward of the grace that you have received that is flowing from God to you and out from you to meet the needs of others. And I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But first, let's just quickly run through this passage with the main and high points. Generous and joyful giving, according to Paul in this text, is because such giving is an expression of faith in God as the one who provides the means to give to each and every one of us. It makes both the giver and the recipient of the gift Grateful to the God who is supplied to all what they have. The first and primary understanding of stewardship from the biblical text when one studies it and concentrates on what God is trying to say is just that. That everything we have is a gift from God. And I want to tell you, we are very poor at recognizing that. I know many, many people who have loved the tithe as a symbol because once they give the tithe, then they can mark off everything they have left as what's left for them. They need to read closer about what the tithe really was, to whom it was really given, and to what it was supposed to be used for in the text. There's not much said about it in the New Testament, but there's a lot said about it in the Old Testament. And the tithe had many uses throughout Scripture. But it was meant to set God's people apart it was meant to be a sign that, to say to the world that they truly understood what it meant to be a follower of Christ, a worshiper of Jehovah God. It was to set them apart as a different people. And the giving was a sign of their gratefulness to God who had given so much to them. Grace, the given generosity, proclaims the glory of God as our provider for us all. We live in a nation that prides itself on individualism, on each each person in our culture has that feeling that they should provide for themselves and that their hard work and their own efforts are the main cause for their prosperity in the land in which we live. And many people out there in our world would describe Americans in just that way. They're such hard workers. In fact, many countries think we work too much. They think we don't take enough vacation. They think we don't know what a holiday is really supposed to be. They think we work too many hours during the day. And you know what? They're all right. Work has become our God in this country if we're not really careful. What happens when our job doesn't make as much money as we want? We go out and find another job, right? So that we can have more toys. So we can rent more storage houses. So we can fill up all the closets. So we can have a garage sale and get new stuff. That is the purpose of garage sales, right? You get rid of some stuff so you can buy more stuff. That's the way it works. Now, I know that toys are fun, and when God gives you and blesses you in many ways, you get the opportunity to purchase many things, but you should always know and realize that everything that you're purchasing is directly related to the graciousness of God in your life who gave you your brain, who gave you your parents, who gave you the inner opportunity to develop into this person who understands work and habits. I know many people who don't know anything about working. It's depressing. I'm not running down the work culture at all in that sense. We all need to know how to work. The Scriptures make that clear to us. Everybody's supposed to work for what they need. But we need to keep in firm sight of ourselves The difference between working for the things we need and working to meet the needs of those who can't meet their own needs. We need to understand that things above our needs are things that we enjoy and some are reasonable and some just quite frankly are not. Because your excess in areas you don't really need it could be providing for those who have less. And you say, yeah, but I earned that money. Yeah, but whose money is it? Is it your money? And you say, it is. Well, it only is if you see it as how it truly is. It's your money that God has given you, entrusted to you to be a good steward of it. So when you think about giving and you, you think about what you want to do, ask yourself, does your giving seem generous? Not to you, not even to the people around you, but does your, generous, does your giving seem generous to the God who gave you what you have? Now, you say, well, I just want to argue that point because I've worked hard for my money. You need to make an appointment and come see me. And I'll convince you that without God, you wouldn't have squat. Trust me. I can do it. I have an appointment calendar. Just get on it. If you really believe you are so responsible for all you have, then you have not yet suffered what you probably will in your lifetime, a loss of a job that you cannot recover, a loss of health that's not your fault, The loss of the ability, therefore, to earn and provide for what you have. The reasons go on and on and on why we need to see that which we have been blessed with as God's gift to us in order that our needs might be met, but that we also might meet the needs of those less fortunate because someday we too, we too will need somebody to help us meet our needs. I'm thinking about my retirement years in terms of that. I've got your addresses. You'd really be shocked if I showed up with my suitcase, wouldn't you? (laughs) You just never know what might happen in the annals of your history. Now, this grace-given generosity proclaims the glory of God, and that is, in its end, why God wants us to give it to others, because it gives witness to how loving and kind and merciful is our God. Because, you see, when we give it, we don't give it so that others will know we gave it. But we give it so that others will know that God inspired us to give it and inspired us to be generous as God is generous. In other words, it results in the praise and prayer to God for the meeting of their needs, not for the praise and prayer for others. So generosity has consequences for others in that it points them toward God and reminds them of God's love and that it also creates unity. You think that when these Gentile Christians provided and met the needs of the Jerusalem Christians, that the Jerusalem Christians didn't take a step back and go, whoa, we weren't even for sure they were Christian. And here they are, meeting our needs. It unifies the body. It's true on a small scale, like an individual church. It's true on a large scale. When you talk about the church across the world, meeting people's needs from a generous spirit, is how we reflect that which we've given, showing proper uh, response to it. It also is good for ourselves because when we give, we then give witness that we truly are Christian. People say, well, how do you know i are a Christian? Well, I go to church every Sunday. Well, that's nice. Uh, I pray, especially when I'm, I need something, I pray. Uh, I, I even read the Bible every now and then. I've got 10 of them in my house, and every now and then I'll read one of them. I, and my church attendance now is regular. Well, how often do you go? Well, in 2015, about twice a month for the average Christian. Is that a generous giving of themselves for worship? Maybe not so much, but I'm coming back to that. I'm going to finish this topic about the giving and this contribution. So it not only is good for others, and not only good for ourselves, but it's good for God because God inhabits the praise of his people. And God knows your heart is right When what you have is not seen as yours, but seen as that which has been entrusted to you by God. That's a big jump for many, many people. Such a hard jump jump, that most of the people in our churches never arrive there. Think about how big a statement that is. Of the millions and millions of believers around the world, many of them never reach the point where they can really give what they feel like they should give to God because of the type of lifestyle that they've constructed and the choices they've made. You say, Preacher, you're opening up a whole can of worms. I give my 10%, that's enough, and I want you to be quiet about the rest of it. No, I can't do that. It's good if you're tithing. I commend you for tithing. But tithing should come from that generous heart. Oh, I forgot to mention something. We have some artwork out in the hall, and it is given as a sign of her work and her love for God and the creative nature that God has given Liz. And that work of art out there is for sale to help finance her trip back to India, where she'll be going in just a a short amount of time to go back and continue her work as a missionary there. So the money that you give for that paintings, those paintings in the hall, would be a glorious praise to God for what God has called Liz to do. Now, I know that her her imagination is vivid, and I wore her out the other night when I was here because the crowd was small and I could get all of her time. Well, what were you thinking when you drew this piece of art? And she said, well, that's really for you to decide. No, 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 I want to know what you were thinking because I don't do art. I I don't really even buy art except when the art that I buy makes a difference for God's work. So I have bid on one painting, and there's a price on those paintings of what they're worth by paying artists, artistic standards. But, you know, nothing should tell, sell just for what it's worth when it's going for the work of God, right? God has the strangest way of raising money. You know, we decided the other day at a mission meeting, many of you weren't able to attend. After Chiv talked and after Liz talked, we, we understood that they needed a restroom at the new church they built in Cambodia. So I said, Chip, tell them to go ahead and build the restroom." you know how much the restroom is going to cost for the church? $600. When I woke up this morning after a fitful sleep for a lot of reasons, when I rose, one of the things that hit my mind is, oh yeah, I told you we'd pay for that restroom. I wonder who we is. (laughs) So this morning, I'm walking down the hall on on the way to the office, and when I do, I meet meet Lindy. And when I, I meet Lindy, uh, she's in a hurry to go somewhere. I said, Lindy, that reminds me, we need to meet to talk about who's going to pay for the restroom for the Cambodian church, Lindy being the chair of the missions committee. And she looked at me, and she kind of smiled, uh, and I kind of smiled. And then somebody going down the hall, another one of our members says, oh, I'll pay for the restroom. Just tell me when you want it and who to give the check to. <laughs> so for now on, any time we need something, I, I'm going to just talk about it in the halls. Because I know that somebody, somebody will hear and they'll respond, right? They needed a restroom there. We need to sell the rest of that art. You can bid on all of them, but the one I bid on. But the bidding is over at 1230. And some of it may not fit your house. I'm buying a picture that one, looks one way and the light reflects on the rear of it and another way when there's no light. And it's the face of a tiger. And it's called Rebel with a Cause. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Every time I see that picture, I'm going to think about Liz because she's a rebel with a cause. I don't know what, it got to do, it's not, what it's got to do with a white lion, not a tiger, but they're very, very rare. But white lions really do exist. I looked it up, Googled it, you know, and there they are, a picture of a white, white lion. Never seen one before. I'll probably never remember anything about the white lion, but I will remember this. I'll remember that Liz conceived it in her head and in her heart, and as a young woman is willing to go to India and be used by God to meet the needs of those who have so little, especially who have so little opportunity to get in a grace space with God. God gets the praise for what we do, no one else. Now, this same God is the God who is able to give us freely and generously all that we need in our life. He's able to pour out his grace upon us. It says it clearly there in that verse that we just read a little while ago. I'm going to back up and read it again. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgivings to God. Now, the book I've been reading lately, it's a book entitled Beyond Money written by Dan uh, Dick that I told you about. He writes about this, and he's got a problem. And his problem is he doesn't think that the church, in the days that he was writing this book uh, within the last 10 years or so, really is protecting what he calls gray space, what I was talking to the children about, the places where we encounter God. and He calls that uh, a gray space. And he thinks that we're not uh, clued in to gray spaces in our lives because of the way that we're living in the fast-paced society that we're all a part of. He says... Blessings given to people of God allowing us to know, love, and serve God better. Just like I told the children, those kind of gifts slash graces create space where God can be met, known, loved, and adored as well as served. Now think about grace places in our lives. Places where we meet God to know more about Him. To get so close to Him that we adore Him to where we're ready to serve him with all of our lives. Stewards are those people who are responsible to protect and care for the grace spaces in their lives. And he questions if we're doing a, good, a very good job of that. And I wish I could just tell you the whole uh, six points he makes, but I'm just going to hit on three. The first one I'm going to hit on seemed especially appropriate to me. How well are we caring for the fellowship spaces in our lives, places where we meet one another, and where God can also be met. He says that fellowship is much more than food and fun and song. And aren't we good at those three things, especially the food and the fun, right? Fellowship dinners are about coming together and having food, more food than we can eat, food left to share with others. And we love to chat it up, right? Don't we? I mean, we love fellowship. We love it in our Sunday school classes. Many Sunday school classes have an hour. They spend 35 minutes Fellowshipping, 15 minutes studying. Yes, some of you are laughing because you've been in some of those classes, and some classes don't. Some people, some classes spend 15 minutes fellowshipping. Whatever you do, you do it all, and a lot of it is to stay in touch with each other's life. But he brings out the point that he doesn't believe that much of our fellowship is nearly in line with what God wants us to accomplish in the times of fellowship we share. He said it's meant to be. Much more than that. I want you to listen to these three things he says it means. Real fellowship, he says, is to know the values of the people with whom you're in fellowship. We need to understand the strong areas of agreement around which, which are most important to us and should be shared by the community that we are fellowshipping with. Less strongly held values are where most disagreements really occur and we need to focus on common values in the last year and a half to two it's become very clear to me how very sincere people can misunderstand the values of one another it's become very clear to me that when values are not shared openly and known before issues come up involving those values that people get hurt in the process. Sometimes they leave the fellowship without even really making an effort to understand all sides of the values. Sometimes we get misinformation about things we think we value and that others value in a different way. And when we get those conflicts within ourselves, sometimes we fail to have enough fellowship to really lay on the table right out in front of God and everybody what it is we're thinking and what what we're thinking is based upon. And in those moments, we do great danger to the community of the faithful. It can get so bad that in some churches, leadership has to step forward and stop the chain reaction that's out of control. It's a serious thing, these values that we possess. And when we don't value things equally and they're the big things, we're headed for trouble sooner or later. The second thing he said is that we must not only know each other's values, we must know each other's hearts. We must know what the people in our community, what is their passion, what are their hopes, and what are their dreams. What do you want more than anything else in the world is a good question because it really divides us when we're not having enough fellowship and when we're together, we're not really talking about things that matter. One of the common things that people like is they want a future that's safe, that's secure, that's filled with joy and God's love. That's true. We all want those things. But what is it that you are willing to do to make your deepest desires a reality and there our values come forward as well because you know we can all accomplish something about the things we care the most about but we feel so inadequate sometimes in achieving what it is we really desire that sometimes we just give up without enlisting through fellowship other people who have the same values and the same heart that we have so that when they're joined together they can accomplish almost anything. A community of faith, if they have shared values and they're known, if they have shared heart-willing desires to accomplish certain things for God, and they're sharing those in the midst, it is like wildfire. It can't be stopped. And yet, some of the most important desires that people have in their heart are never known because they're kept so private they're never shared. They're not able to be appropriated by others in the community all the gifts of the community cannot be brought to bear to share them or cause them to happen because they're not shared. And lastly, he says that in real fellowship, we need to know one another's faith. The great question that comes out of the Wesleyan revival in England was this. When they would meet together, the question they would always ask one another was, how is it with your soul? How are you How are you in God? Not how was your day last week, how's the business going, but how is it with your soul? That's a question around which much fellowship can be gathered to consider. I know when I arrived here, one of the things you were doing in meetings were addressing the question before you started. Where have you experienced God's grace in your life this, this past week? Or there's other groups and communities that use a phrase, how have you extended God's love to others since we were last together, all of those are great questions. And you know, I'll admit that there's so much to be done that many times committees want to get on with their meeting. They don't want to take too much time sharing because it'll make the meeting too long. But small meetings are where we can fellowship, or where our values can be expressed and and re-energized within a small group, group of people where it's doable. It's a place where our deepest desires can be expressed and where others can be sought to get on board with us so what God is calling us to do might actually be done. It's a place where, when we get together, we might be sure that our faith is similar into what we're pursuing. I think committee members need to get back to that. So chairs of all our standing committees and those that aren't standing but are are meeting regularly, go back to your questions. Talk about where you've seen God. Because if we're not seeing God in our life and can't, don't have anything to talk about, we need to dispense with whatever business it is you think you've gathered for and address why we aren't having answers to the questions we're talking about on a regular basis. Now, it's not just faith he lists. In fact, he listed six things in this discussion. That's what makes it so good, right? He mentioned not only fellowship that concerned him, but he mentioned Sabbath, and he mentioned worship, communion, the festival, and the tithe. I want to talk a moment about Sabbath. He's really mad about Sabbath, by the way. Just thought I'd let you all know. Um, he's really upset about it because he thinks we're obliterating the true meaning of the Sabbath in most churches today. Because Sabbath made a transition. It went from Saturday to Sunday for Christians, right? It went from the old Sabbath in the Old Testament to the resurrection of Christ in the New Testament. And now these 2,000 years later or so, we've got it down to an art where we get all the Sabbath we need on Sunday morning for most folks in the world from 11 to 11.59. Isn't that cool? We can get all the Sabbath and rest and spirituality we need in that hour about twice a month. If God has a stomach, he throws up at that idea. Now, some of you are going to say, now, preacher, you're fixing to get on the wrong topic. I am. I'm going to get right on the topic. In fact, I'm going to get right straddle of it. We are doing better than most folks. We even have Wednesday night chance to fellowship and eat together and talk about our faith now. We've expanded that. But you know how paranoid somebody is, that a little, a little young lady with a lot of experience in life, came out of the dinner last Wednesday. And she said, we're going to have these in the spring too, right? I said, oh, yeah, we're not fixing to stop these. Well, I, I know attendance is down a little bit this week, but I just didn't want us to give up. I said, don't worry. We're going to eat. And the best news is all of y'all are going to pay for it. And I want to thank you as one who's there regularly. Uh, We take contributions, but we don't charge anyone to come and eat that meal with us. If you want a gift, great. If you don't, great. The finance committee is going to pay for it. (laughs) And when we pay for it, we're going to encourage you to come and eat. We don't want you worried about the money. We want you to come and eat in fellowship in the middle of the week for a strategic reason. It has to do with your soul. We want you to grow closer together. We want you to be the rare church that has 80% of its worship attendance in Sunday school. Shame on other churches who are satisfied with 20 or 25% and more shame on the church of Jesus Christ in this country where they've canceled Sunday school and they act like one large group gathering in the and then a small number of them get together in a little core group and meet during the week, but they don't have any more time on the Sabbath than that hour and a half. Shame on them he really gets upset about worship that we don't spend enough time in worshiping he obviously hadn't been here lately he gets upset that we don't sing enough songs that too often it's a performance rather than people joining in guess what here we sing almost always it was a rarity today for us to sit back and have you sing to us and we thank you for that and that's an appropriate thing to do it is but while special music is special Most of your singing should have enough time in the worship service where you sing enough that people really get into it, and they're all singing. It's not a performance. It's praise to God. Worship is about God. It's not about us. It's not about us. Thank God we have that box checked off in this church. People come here to worship God. It's not about time either, but it's become all about time. And shame on the Christian community for allowing that to happen. People regularly, not too regularly, but not as regularly as in other places, but regularly remind me, you know, services are getting a little long. And I said, well, we can make them longer if you need them. Because, you see, when it would come, there's magic in starting church at 1030. There's such a difference in feel in what we do in worship when you have an hour and 15 minutes and when you have 59. I don't know why it's that way. You say, well, it allows you to preach longer like you're doing today. And, you know, I don't know when I started, so I don't know why I'm looking at it and watching. But I don't remember when I started, but I just know this. I know that we need to protect our Sabbath, and we we need to quit giving it away to everybody else. Because if we don't spend enough time with God and make God central to our life, nobody else is going to believe that we're really Christian. They're just not going to believe it. Worship. Wow, I've already got I spilled over to worship, and it's not one of the three I was going to talk about. The tithe. What does he say about the tithe? Let me just review my notes. He says that the tithe is meant to be an act of grace. When we use it to pay church bills, it's a misuse of our time and our worship. It's meant to be an action illustrating community and also our trust in God to replenish and continue to give to those of us who give what we have away. You see, the word generosity should define us as a people who are generous in response to the needs of others because God has been generous in response to their needs. I'm not talking about wants now. I'm not talking about stockpiling. I'm talking about needs. Tithing should be a celebration rather than a sacrifice. Don't come up to me and tell me you're working hard to try and give sacrificially to God because if you do, I'm going to nail you to your own cross. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Preacher. I'm going to have you give an account of your giving so I can see if it really is sacrificial. But even if it is, even if you're bleeding, I want you to be like the widow who gave her a last penny and was commended by God rather than those who gave bountifully to the treasury of the, of the temple. You see, it's not about sacrifice. Giving is about Celebration. It's about, oh, my God, God has saved me. Oh, my God, God gave me his son. Oh, my God, God has supplied my every need. Oh, my God, I can trust God in the good times and in the times when my plate is full. Oh, my God, I am so blessed to celebrate God's great love for me that I want to give. I want some of you right now are wanting to run out and bid on those paintings, aren't you? You got to wait a few more minutes. You're wanting to buy a painting, not because you need another painting. You've probably got some stacked away. But because you want to support a person who's serving God in India. That's why you want to buy a painting. You're not worried about what you're going to do with it. Surprise your rest of your family and spend their dinner money on it. It's okay. I'm all right with that. They won't die if they miss a meal. If we can get to the place where our generosity defines our tithing, our fellowshipping, our worship, our festivals, where it defines our communion, when we come forward and we open up our hearts and minds to a God who's generously willing to pour gifts of grace into our lives, what a difference that will make in communion service. I know churches, and I've pastored churches, I'm ashamed to say, where the lowest Sunday in the month was Communion Sunday because it was going to make them a little late leaving. They had DVRs, but they still had to be there for the kickoff. I really had one guy who at 1159, if Jesus appeared at 1158, he missed him. He was not going to stay and be late to that game. Oh, did I work on him for over five years. I didn't get very far. Because he just didn't show up in enough grace spaces for God to change his heart. You can't come to church too much. You can't serve too much. You can't give too much. You can't learn too much. You can't worship too much. I'm not worried about you doing any of that stuff to the extreme and being unhealthy. Like Brother Dick, I'm worried that the church is going to lose sight of what God called her into being to do because we've slotted the part of us that God can have instead of giving God our whole selves. I'm through now. I'm tired. I've preached on this sermon all night long. And you know what? If your opinions about decisions in the body of Christ based upon what you know or what you understand, is causing you to be divisive in the church of God anywhere. You need to look very seriously at what you're thinking about and the actions you're taking. If you believe that you're so right about some issue that does not strike at the heart of Christian faith, that you feel you have to go away that does not bring the whole people of God with you who are your community, you need to look hard at your faith because we will not be divided as a body of Christ. Division is not of Christ. It is not of the community of Christ. Divisions should be settled within the body of Christ so that all can move forward together and they will all be approached in that way. We must stand together. We're coming tonight to pray for our church at 6.30. I hope you don't live farther than 15 minutes away. I do. That means I won't know if the Cowboys won or lost. But I'll be here Before you'll be here, waiting to pray with you about this church. Because we need to pray. We need to pray for one another. And we need to pray for what God is calling us to do. I hope to see you tonight with your children. To pray with you so that they know what the purpose of prayer is. To bring us into a space that God can fill and pour out his grace to each of us. As we stand and sing, if you need to say something to God or to accept God's work in your life, we invite you to come forward and announce your profession of faith. If you're here and you are a Christian, but you need a place where you can find a space where you will be important and where you can count, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.